Russia's land war in Ukraine is in some ways an outgrowth of its long-running cyberspace war. And that affects everybody, not just Ukraine. For how the current situation changes the cybersecurity picture, I spoke with the senior director of the Center on Cyber and Technology at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, retired Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery. Right now, as the United States and our European and and even Asian allies now increase sanctions on the Russian financial system, such as the Russian Central Bank that happened over the weekend, and uh, on President Putin and his closest uh, advisors and oligarchs, as also happened over the weekend, and hopefully soon, Russian energy investments. You know, as we increase that pressure, it's very possible that Russia will expand its cyber campaign beyond Ukraine, where it's hot and heavy right now, to include the United States and European targets. Russia's hackers, they're not just military and intelligence cyber units. They also include proxies that they support and enable. They have the ability to inflict damage on our critical infrastructure and on individual companies. The government recently disclosed, the U.S. government, that Russia has been persistently probing numerous U.S. critical infrastructures for, for over a decade. So it's reasonable to expect that there's malware that already exists inside critical U.S. water, energy aviation, nuclear, and critical manufacturing systems. Right. And what we've seen till now, especially in this whole ransomware era that we're in, is that Russian cyber hacking has mainly had a klepto motive, money motive. But it would seem now their motive is less cash, or maybe it is, still is, but disruption and interruption of services. Well, certainly in the past, the past being a year ago, the Russian government was tacitly allowing cyber criminals to operate ransomware as a service entities from Russian infrastructure and was sheltering them and shielding them from international prosecution. It's just as likely that these you know, criminal gangs you know, with a wink and a nod could begin to go at either U.S. companies or if they really want to escalate things at U.S. critical infrastructure. And, and you know, to some degree, much of the private sector and that critical infrastructure is not prepared for a uh, for a cyber war. Is there any particular action that operators of critical infrastructure or banking systems or any systems administrator, for that matter, even if you're a defense contractor, for example, should be doing now? And is there any type of footprint that they can seek in their logs, in their networks that might be helpful to preventing an attack? So the, the first thing I'd say is, you know, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency inside the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI and NSA have put out a series of warnings over the last three months that I think do a good job of like stating the cyber hygiene that businesses, particularly small and medium-sized businesses, should be carrying out. I think there should be an asterisk on most of those, you know, on most of those alerts that say, by the way, if you haven't been seriously investing in cyber resilience over the last two to three years, you're probably in trouble. But if I were to give a company advice, I'd say, first of all, identity management, making sure they're using the right passwords, the right multi-factor factor authentication, that they're using tools that limit the ability for phishing, email phishing to occur, and then probably movement management. In other words, start to restrain and limit the access that, that certain personnel, even administrators, have to move through systems. This will slightly lower efficiency, no doubt about it, but it will greatly increase security. Right. So scans now and pay attention to what you find. Are there any, I guess, has CISA published specific profiles of what these type of sleeperware might look like? So they have. Recently, they've put out a couple good examples of, uh, of, what, of what to expect. Now, I would say that's limited, especially if it's one of the military or intelligence cyber units coming after you, an advanced persistent threat team. I don't think that the 
CISA advisories are, are intended to really prepare you for that. They're probably more for the proxy actors using widely available tools. But still, the access management, access control, if you're thinking about getting systems that do reasonable threat hunting inside your networks, if you have those systems and, and you're paying for slightly less capable um, periodicity or a frequency or a d- degree of management, I'd, I'd probably look at opening up that uh, the wallet a little bit on that. I think you have the time. Those kind of changes where you're improving existing efforts, you're probably can, you can still tweak your performance. If you haven't invested in this, if you've taken the, the path of least cost, you're probably now just hoping that you're you know, not the intended target. We're speaking with Rear Admiral retired Mark Montgomery, a senior director and senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. And let's talk about the offensive side of this. We've been building this cyber command and cyber capability throughout the military now for quite some years. And understandably, they've been reluctant to say what they can or would do from an offensive standpoint. What's your sense of what's probably going on now from our side toward Russia? I mean, it's not our war strictly, but let's face it, we're the, we are the, uh, the protector here. So I, I'd say the first thought on this is you're absolutely right. Cyber deterrence is really a three-legged stool. One is companies defending themselves. We talked about that. The second is the U.S. government working closely with those companies, as much collaboration as we can. I, we haven't talked much about that, but the, there's a lot written on that. And the third part is that you maintain a capable offensive cyber operations capacity. And the U.S. government has done that both in our military and in our intelligence services. We have good offensive cyber operations uh, capabilities and capacities. One thing I'd say about this is I think we're probably preserving our cyber capability for response to attacks on our critical infrastructure or on U.S. companies or attacks that go into Europe for which the European countries aren't in a position to, to respond. And, you know, I would caveat also that the United States has always said, if you do a significant cyber attack on us, you know, impact our critical infrastructure, we reserve the right to use all kinds of different tools against you. I mean, I guess more economic tools like sanctions, but also all types of military tools. So we preserve that. I do think in this case, though, we're going to be very careful with President Putin to not get into an escalatory tit for tat and will probably respond very much, um, you know, equally in a non-escalatory manner against Russian attacks on our companies or infrastructure. And again, Russia would be ill-served to attack our critical infrastructures that impact health and public safety, as you're very likely to get the horns from the United States after that. Right. So I guess the follow-on question would be then, just a couple days ago, Ukraine asked formally of Congress to appropriate and send arms to Ukraine to help them. They would pull the trigger. It would be our arms. By the same token, do you think that we might ship them copies of our cyber capabilities and let them pull the trigger on Russia? I'm not I'm not sure about that. I, I, I can say that just like we sold javelins and stingers and some other systems to the uh, Ukrainians, sporadically over the last six years in, in an inconsistent way that is now harming, you know, Ukraine's ability to deter further Russian aggression. We've been slightly inconsistent in our cyber capability capacity building with the Ukrainians. We have spent the last six years starting and then stopping um, cyber capacity building efforts. I, I recently, I think we've been spending about $50 million a year, which is about a small amount. 
And I think some of the improved performance of the Ukrainian cyber defenses is due to that. And a lot of it's due to the Ukrainians' own investments in this, where they've really done a good job. This is a lot less damage to their infrastructure through cyber than I think most of us would have postulated five days ago. There's more to go, and we don't know what Russia's held in reserve, uh, but there'll be more. I'm not sure about the idea. This isn't like a good, to me, this is not a great hunt forward case where you're, you you position your people side by side, as we did maybe in Montenegro, I think is an area where the United States has said they've done this, to help someone kind of expel Russian cyber bad actors. I, I just don't think that's consistent with the president's decision making on a U.S. footprint in Ukraine. Got it. So then in some ways, too, I guess the consideration is when you widely spread those capabilities to other governments, unlike Stinger missiles or Patriot missile banks or that type of thing, or which have a very low chance of getting out into the wild, whereas a cyber asset is so fungible, it could end up anywhere. Exactly. You know, I, I think that's that's a good part of the case. And, uh, you know, and uh, I definitely believe that the Javelin missiles we're transferring to Ukraine are going to be used with the intent of disabling, um, you know, Russian T-72 and T-80 tanks, not anything American. Retired Navy Rear Admiral Mark Montgomery is a senior fellow and senior director at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. We'll post this interview along with some essays he's written, posts, links to those at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, Welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent, and what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, So that was probably the the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with a level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.